Today is Palm Sunday, the day we remember and recognize Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that kicked off that week, leading him to the cross. And we're going to read that as part of our text for this morning, but more fitting with the sermon series that we've been doing, we'll actually be focusing more on what Jesus did next, after that triumphal entry. And so to hear that whole story, we're going to read the entirety of Mark chapter 11. It's found in your pew Bibles on page 1007. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen behind me as well. But again, from the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, I'll be reading all of the chapter. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany... At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father 
also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before I read that text, I made reference to our Lenten sermon series. And for those who are visiting this morning, let me just catch you up a little bit. We have been doing a sermon series entitled The Wages of Sin. And we've looked at a number of the instances where God's wrath against sin was quickly poured out upon those who had committed sins. We started by looking at the people of Sodom, and we saw how in relations to Lot, the whole community was corrupting or tugging at the one righteous man. We then looked at Achan after the time of uh, the fall of the walls of Jericho and how he had stolen something. And because of the sin of one person, it was affecting the whole entire community, and therefore his life was forfeit. We looked at how people are responsible for their own sins, and not the sins of others. We also then looked at King Saul, and how when he offered the sacrifice, he didn't end up forfeiting his life, but he forfeited his testimony and his kingdom. And then last week, we looked at the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira, recognizing that even after Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, sin is still a big deal. And we can't overlook it or ignore it, that the penalty is still there. And in all of those different sermons, oftentimes the outline ended up being something along the lines of, well, what was the big deal of what they did and why were they punished so severely? Those were questions that we asked over and over again. And when we do start to ask those kinds of questions and in our society and in our world, start to point out areas of sin, how do people usually respond? Usually, or very oftentimes, the response we get when we challenge people in their sins and point out areas of failure is, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to point out this sin to me and call me on account of this? Do you think you're better than me? Because I know stuff that you've done that's been wrong as well. Why do you think you have the right to call out what I've done as sinful? Because I can do the same to you. And those are the kinds of questions that Jesus was asked at the very end of our text. After going through all of these different things, the religious leaders were watching. They saw his entry into Jerusalem. 
They saw how he had cleared the temple, and they wanted to know, by what authority do you do these things? Translated into modern English, they were asking the question, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to critique our lives? So let's ask that question with them using the text from Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 11 that we used this morning. And as soon as we do ask that question, we recognize immediately that the Jesus we meet in this text is not the Jesus we usually think of immediately. So, for example, up to this point in the book of Mark, normally, whenever anybody recognized Jesus for his authority and were suggesting of the fact that he might be the Messiah, his response was to subdue that, to say, don't tell other people. He said that because his hour had not yet come. But in this text... He not only seems to encourage, but is willing to receive the praise and the acknowledgement of people that he was the Messiah that he was. When we think of Jesus's power over creation, we think of his miracles and how he healed and how at times he spoke calming storms and how he was able to walk on water. But in this text, he demonstrates a power over creation by cursing a tree. It's the only miracle that Jesus does that produces death rather than life. Not something we expect. Again, when we think of Jesus, we often think of him as a meek, kind-hearted man, willing to welcome and receive and love everyone around him. But in our text, when he goes to the temple, we see that as a Jesus that is overthrowing tables, he is throwing things around and he is preventing people from carrying anything through the temple. And again, this seems rather out of character for what we often think about who Jesus is. So we ask, who is this Jesus? But as much as this text raises questions about who Jesus is, it also gives us some pretty direct and profound answers. So first of all, we learn that he is the great king, the great Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. As mentioned throughout most of his ministry, Jesus tried to keep people from recognizing that or sharing that news. But at this, his final entry into Jerusalem, he is ready to receive and allow the praise of the crowd to acknowledge him as king. And in their quoting of scriptures of the Old Testament and in allusions that he makes to Old Testament prophecies, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is the descendant of David that had been long awaited. It is abundantly clear that he is the Messiah. And maybe he is not going to set up an earthly kingdom as many of those people likely supposed and wanted. Nevertheless, he is the king coming into this city. And while it is a surprise to see Jesus cursing this fig tree, it reveals a few things about who he is. First of all, it reveals that he is God, the creator. God alone could speak things into existence. 
And just by speaking, Jesus is able to ensure that this fig tree will never produce anything again. And it is effective. Within hours of this declaration, this tree is dead and it never will produce anything again. And acknowledging that it's a bit different from what we normally see, but clearly it demonstrates the power of Jesus' word over creation. And that same action we also see Jesus as prophet. When we look at the Old Testament, the prophets were often these people doing very strange and odd things. But the reason why they would do these things, these prophetic actions, was to try to illuminate points and, and teachings that God was trying to communicate to his people. And so to be abundantly clear, this fig tree is not just cursed and withered because it wasn't giving Jesus any food. It was cursed and is withered, and is the way that the story is told. The action takes place a little bit before the clearing of the temple, and then it's returned to after the clearing of the temple. And what we recognize is in cursing the fig tree, Jesus is doing something that's revealing about the temple itself. And the cursing of the fig tree is an illumination of why he is cleansing that temple and what's taking place there. And so that's what we also learn about Jesus. Obviously, when he clears the temple, he's upset with something. There is something that is not right that is going wrong. And the question that we've been asking throughout the sermon series comes into play again. Well, what's going on that is so bad that seems to get Jesus this upset? And what's the big deal that causes this unexpected act of aggression? And that's the question that a lot of people have tried to figure out from this text. Because while it explains what Jesus did, it doesn't directly explain why. And so we have to look for clues. And the main clues that most people look to is verse 17, where Jesus himself says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And for many, they hear that word robbers. And they look at the historical record and they recognize that those money changers were often taking advantage of travelers. So as Passover was going on, there were people that were traveling from all around the known world coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this important time of their Jewish faith, coming to the temple itself in order to remember Passover. But they couldn't carry their sacrifices with them, and so they would come with their foreign coin, and they would exchange it to the rate for the temple. And then they would be able to purchase their pigeons and their sacrifices at the temple in order to engage. And oftentimes, those money changers were taking advantage of those travelers. And so hearing that word robbers, people are suggesting that they were excluding people. That they were taking advantage of them financially in order to prevent them or hindering their worship of the Lord. And maybe that was the problem. And there's evidence for that. Others hear that statement, well, that says that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And again, by historical record, we recognize that it is very likely that these booths and these tables were set up in the court of the Gentiles. 
the temple itself being divided into many different courts and areas, the holy place, and then the court of the priests, the court of men, the court of women, and then the court of Gentiles. And their suggestion is that it's very likely that all of this booths and all of these sales were robbing Gentile believers of their opportunity to worship and to pray to God. And there's evidence for that. And so what is wrong is that it's preventing people from worshiping God because all this activity is taking place. Others suggest that when you talk about a den of robbers, that's not where the robbery is taking place, but it's where after having stolen something, robbers run to for security. And so if the temple is a den of robbers, the idea is that it's this false sense of security. Outside of the temple, I can go and do and live however I want, sinning and, and doing all kinds of things. But as long as I come back to this place and offer the right sacrifices and say the right prayers, then I'm safe. I'm secure. And it doesn't matter what happens out there. I can be okay with God as long as I kill this animal. And then we're good. The reality is that it's very likely that all of that is playing into what is going on. In the end, the issue was that this temple practice, in all of what the temple had become to the Israelites at this time, was being judged. It had become a place where people were making a personal profit from what should have been worship of God. It had become a place where Gentiles were being pushed from their place of worship, not invited to come, but being driven away. It had become a place where people could excuse their sin and just assume that it would be taken care of by the right practices. And it had become a place of false security. It was a place that had stopped bearing fruit. Stop bearing the fruit of making disciples and truly inviting people into a walk, a relationship with God. And therefore, it all had to be cleared of these abuses. It had to be cleansed. It had to be undone and replaced. And that's what Jesus had come to do. Again, we've been talking about the wages of sin in this sermon series. And over and over again, we have seen how through taking God's word lightly, people forfeit not only their legacy, but their very lives and very quickly. And that what we've seen in others is exactly what we deserve. When we take the great creator God and assume that we're smarter or that we know better. When we're willing to choose our priorities and our desires and our ways over his we know that what we have earned is death and separation from him forever. We deserve to bear no fruit, to wither and die. But here's the amazing thing. When we go back to our original question, who does Jesus think he is? We not only learn that he is the one that has all the authority, all the power, that he is king and that with his very word, he can speak both life or destruction. We also know, as it says in John three seventeen, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Previously, the people assumed that if they wanted a relationship with the Lord, it had to be cultivated and fostered at the temple and through the temple. That was where sacrifices were offered. And so that is where they had to be purchased, no matter the price. But then Jesus says, I will be willing to pay the price of your sins. That was where you had to go to pray to God. But in his discussion after the withered fig tree, Jesus says that it doesn't matter where you pray, but it matters if you pray to God with faith. To remember that you are praying to a God that wants to forgive you, and so no matter where you are, you can go to him. And when you ask in faith, he is a God that is there who wants to bless you. Previously, you had to go to the temple to go through the offering of the sacrifices in order to initiate yourself as a member in relationship with God. But then a man named John the Baptist had come along who was calling people to repent and inviting them to be baptized into a relationship and a walk with the Lord. The leaders didn't know what to do with this man because he was circumventing their authority. He was saying, you can know God and walk with him without engaging with the temple. But while the authority may have asked questions, it was clear he was producing fruit. The temple was a busy place, especially during the Passover season, where there's a lot of activity and much green leaves but it wasn't leading people into the presence of God and toward change lives. It was a false and temporary security for sinners and a place where people were supposed to be able to pray, but couldn't. That is why it angered our Lord. That is why he poured out some of his wrath and that is more importantly why it had to be renewed and changed. And that's what Jesus had come to do. As the perfect king who was the creator himself, he had come to offer himself as the final sacrifice. And when he did, all of those other animal sacrifices would come to an end. And all who looked to Christ in faith would be invited into a right relationship with God where they could know him, pray to him always and everywhere, and live lives free from enslavement to sin. Who is this Jesus? He's the one that has the power to condemn us with his word. But instead, he is the great God who says, I will save you and point you toward Christ. When thinking about what Jesus did to the temple, I couldn't help but also think of a pretty famous quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity, about changing us. C.S. Lewis in that book writes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking, knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And that's where we not only get back to the beginning of this message, but to its application. Again, here's the reality. All of us are sinners. Not only have we done things from time to time that we knew were wrong, we are addicted to our sin. And there are things that we are willing to do and overlook in our lives all of the time. And too often our attitude is the same as the religious leaders. Who does Jesus think he is to ask me to change? What right does he have to look at my life and say to me, you should do things different? Why does he want to change me? Why can't he accept me for who I am? But the story answers that question. He is the king. He is the creator God who speaks with authority over all that he has made. And Jesus has the right to condemn us, but instead... He said that he came not to condemn, but to save you. He came to get rid of all of those things that are getting in the way of a relationship with God and allow us to know him and to walk with him. And he did that by offering a new way, by offering his life instead of yours, by proving his power over sin and taking the penalty of death itself on himself on the cross. He conquered that death through his resurrection. And now he invites you to come to him to find forgiveness and a new relationship with God. And that's what this Holy Week is all about. It is about Jesus pointing sinners to the only way of reconnecting to a holy God. So here's the question. Does Jesus have permission to change you? Do you grant him authority over all the areas of your life? And instead of asking, who do you think you are? Do you say, come, cleanse me, wash me, and help me be changed into the temple, the holy palace where you can dwell and be seen in others. That's what Jesus wants to do to all of your lives. To come and change you into the person he's calling you to be. May we all welcome him to be the king of our lives and save us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the shouts from the crowd on that triumphal entry was save us. And yet despite saying those words, they were unwilling to let you into certain areas of the temple of their practices, of their own personal benefits. And Lord, we confess that very often that is the story of who we are. We say, save us. We say we will wait for you, that we will trust in your word and we will rely on it for our guidance and for its truth. And yet, so often, we go out and we refuse to allow you access to our lives. We don't want to be changed. But I pray, O oh Lord, 
that you would kill any area in our lives that need to be put to death. That we would welcome your spirit and your power into our lives to change the very nature of who we are. We would put to death the sin that separates us from you. And because of the sacrifice of Christ and the faith that we have put in you, that we would become the people that you have called us to be. Because it is not through our power or our strength or our ability. We know we cannot put to death sin on our own. But it is only by looking to you, the perfect sacrifice, that we can turn you into the king of our lives. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord. Amen.